The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has been taking care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpack.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Welcome back to the Alaska Powerline podcast. I'm Michael Ruvito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association. Today, we're excited to welcome our guest, Mr. Bill Stamm, President and CEO of Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, or AVEC. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the interest. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you describe a little bit about AVEC, kind of, you guys are in a real unique situation in the how you serve them. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about AVEC and why it's so unique? AVEC is an electric cooperative and we serve 58 rural communities around Alaska. Only one of those communities is accessible by road. So everything that we build and supply in those communities has to either be brought in by boat or by plane. And uh, we operate 48 power plants. Uh, we've got 32 wind turbines in 12 different locations. And uh, there are individual microgrids serving uh, one, two, or three communities, depending on if we have some of the closer communities tied together with distribution systems. It is uh, primarily a diesel generation system, and uh, we have to import diesel fuel in the summertime when the barges are running. We have a couple of communities that don't get barge service, so we have to fly diesel fuel in. And um, it's a continual operation, just providing power for the schools, stores, and residences out in these rural communities. Yeah, it's a really unique situation. And we always talk about how unique Alaska is because the state is not electrically connected to any other region or national grid. And and especially in AVEX case, like you mentioned, your communities are electrically isolated. And so from a utility standpoint, an operation standpoint, what does that mean? What are those challenges when your community is not interconnected to any other community? Yeah, we, we're definitely self-supporting out there. If the power plant goes down, there's nobody else to call or ask for power. And there have been times when we do have a power plant go down it's down for a few hours and uh, the communication system for the community might also go down because they don't have battery or generation backup. And then uh, the response effort gets to be that much more difficult. As you can imagine, there's uh, difficult weather scenarios. It's usually what causes uh, major outages. And um, when the weather's down, the planes don't fly. So communities can be without power for hours or, or days at a time if uh, we have a major incident. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I go to some of the national conferences and you'll hear some of the challenges in the lower 48, which are 
um, which do exist, but they don't exist in a way of when you're not interconnected to another community where you could just get some power from uh, if you need it or if your system goes down. So that's that's really um, that's really a special circumstance. Bill, how long have you worked at AVEC? I've worked for AVEC 29 years, I believe. Started in 1993, and uh, the positions I've held have been a variety of things. I started with uh, just being a field hand traveling out to the communities, working on power plants and power lines. Um, came into the office and worked in engineering and operations for many years. And now I'm the president and CEO. So I'm sure in that time, you've probably seen a lot of change in not only the utility industry, but serving rural utilities as a whole. Um, what have been some of the notable changes? Is there something that really sticks out to you that is different here in 2023 that was, uh, you know, not the same as it was back in the 90s when you started there? There's There's been a lot of milestones. One of the ones I, I like to joke about, um, when I started in 93, there wasn't a telephone in each of our power plants. And there, there was a big milestone in the late 90s when we actually had a fax machine and a landline to all of our power plants. Uh, things have changed. The technology that we use uh, for generating power has been you know, tried and true for many years, but with the advent of renewable energy and energy storage just in the last five or 10 years, uh, there's kind of been a major shift in how power can be generated uh, in these communities and on small microgrids and uh, a much higher emphasis on uh, electronics, not just electricity, but electronics that make uh, the coordination between multiple different generation sources possible. Yeah, I know I've seen some photos from back in the day of, you know, the way that uh, power used to be provided. And it seems like there's definitely a lot more, is it safe to say automation in the power uh, industry that's helpful out in rural communities? Yeah, that is definitely the case. And, um, you know, it, it. I think it is, uh, as with so many things, there's a, a specialization that happens. Um, you know, it used to be that if you could fix your outboard motor with a little bit of training, you could probably operate and maintain a, a power plant as well. And now with uh, the advent of highly specialized controls and electronics, uh, variable speed drives, um, programmable logic controllers, you know, there's, there's different uh, specialties of people that are programmers, people that are communication experts, uh, people that know about electricity and electronics uh, to keep these things running that uh, we didn't necessarily need to have before. So we have a, a large fleet of diesel generators. We, we will always have a need for diesel generation, diesel technicians, mechanics, uh, but more and more we are seeing uh, specialty needs for making everything play nice together, uh, which is heavily reliant on computerized and digital technology. I was going to ask about that with, with your workforce. Um, you know, the, the electric cooperative and electric utilities are usually, in my opinion, one of the best places to work in the community. It's a stable job. It's, you know, it takes some skill. You learn a lot. But what sort of workforce does AVEC employ? Are you, do you have folks in every one of your communities that 
operate various aspects of the system, or do you do you fly people in? How does that work there? Well, again, it's it's probably another uh, unique aspect to AVEC. We do have power plant operators that are local to the communities that we serve. They are uh, serving in part-time positions where they show up to the power plant, make sure that the plant is running as desired. There's no leaks. They fill the day tank with fuel so the diesel generators stay running. They will change oil and filters as needed. And they're basically the, the boots on the ground, uh, eyes and ears of what's going on on day-to-day -day operation. If there's any major maintenance or construction that needs to be done in a community, typically that involves rotating crews in and out of the village. Uh, we have on staff um, linemen that go out there for uh, maintaining the distribution system, diesel technicians, uh, welders, electricians that work within the power plant for construction, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, control specialists that do programming and coordination between equipment. And just for folks who are listening, who may want to be getting into the electric utility world, how, is your workforce generally coming to a large retirement place here? It seems like a lot of folks in the electric utility industry are getting close to retirement age. Are you seeing that at AVEC where you will have a, a pretty large retirement class coming up soon and you're looking for new workers to come up through the ranks? I think we've already started to experience that. We've had a lot of senior personnel leave over the last five or seven years. Um, there are always uh, positions available at AVAC. We have uh, a lot of those traveling te technician um, positions are difficult to maintain for folks. They don't like being away from home. Uh, the travel can be arduous over time, those sorts of things. So openings do come up quite a bit. Um, we also have about 30 folks that work full-time in Anchorage, and uh, those, it's all support staff in operations and uh, accounting. We do a lot of project development, working with our communities to figure out where we can install new generation stations or if we have line extensions that need to be accomplished. We've got an engineering staff here that designs and maintains our facilities. So there are lots of opportunities and lots of different capacities to work for AVEC. So if you're in the market for a utility job, go look at AVEC's website and see what they got. And if you want to see a lot of unique different parts of Alaska, check out those traveling tech positions. Because I know I've been fortunate to travel in different areas of the state and Alaska is a really unique place, and you see some very interesting sites when you're out there on the job. Um, let's let's change gears a little bit and talk about power generation. You mentioned a minute ago renewable generation, and I know I've seen some very beautiful pictures of some of the renewable sites that you've installed out of AVEC communities. Can you talk a little bit about what AVEC is doing to integrate renewable power in your communities? Sure. Um Probably all the way back to 2005, we started installing wind turbines in a few of our locations and continue to build those out as as money and time allows. But uh, we've also 
partnered most recently with the Northwest Arctic Borough. They've installed a solar battery system in Chungnak, and we are now purchasing power from the tribes in Kobuk and Chungnak for that small grid that serves Kobuk and Chungnak. But uh, I think I mentioned at the at the top of the conversation that we have 32 wind turbines in different locations, and that makes up, unfortunately, only about 5% of our total generation. Um, for each individual community, it can displace anywhere from 10 to 25% on average of the total generation for that community. Uh, we do have one site in St. Mary's that has displaced as much as 45% of the total diesel burn in that community on an annual basis, which is fabulous uh, without any energy storage. We are in the process right now of testing an energy storage module for that location in St. Mary's. We purchased what we call a grid bridging system, which is just a short duration energy storage system. It was delivered to Alaska this spring and is up actually at the University of Alaska, Alaska Center for Energy and Power testing facility running it through its paces before we put it on a barge and send it down river to St. Mary's. And we're hoping to get, you know, above 50% displacement of diesel fuel for the communities of St. Mary's, Mountain Village, and Pitkiss Point, which are all tied together um, in that in that grid on the Yukon River. That's really exciting. I know we've seen renewable power, wind, solar, batteries, and other clean energy generation coming in across the state. Hydropower is big too. But from a utility manager standpoint, can you talk a little bit, and I, I know we'll get a little, maybe get a little technical here on this, but there's a balance that has to be struck, right? Because reliability needs to be maintained, affordability. So when AVEC is looking at potentially uh, integrating a renewable generation source in the community, what sort of elements go into that thought process in terms of maintaining that reliability and just kind of working with the variable nature of renewables out there? Yeah, you're right, Michael. There's there's a lot to consider. Um, for many years, you know, prior to the more recent development of lower cost wind and solar, you know, prices for that have come down drastically over the last 20 years. ABAC had in its in its tariff some very limited caps on how much power it would allow for cogeneration or you know non-utility owned generation on the grids. And those are still in place. And, and primarily that was so that they didn't upset the, the apple cart. The, the consumer-owned generation, rooftop solar um, and wind on very small grids, which the utility would have no ability to control, you know, if we can't control the generation that's coming onto the grid, uh, could very easily upset what is happening at the power plant to, to maintain frequency and voltage. So there was always a very small cap. As AVEC got into the, the business itself of putting in um, generation, where we are, you know, making large input from renewable generation, which is variable, we had to come up with um, items that would help us stabilize the grid. And for many years, that was through a secondary load controller. So we have a variable wind resource, which is fairly large for a community's actual load. Average loads in our community can be four or 500 kW. It's not uncommon. 
then we might go in and install three, four, five hundred kW of wind on that system. So when the wind is really blowing, we're going to make a huge impact um, on the power for that grid. In order to stabilize that grid, which is usually handled by a, a diesel generator, um, when the wind blows very hard, it can destabilize the system and actually start to push the, the generator into what they call reverse power. So we have to do a couple of things. We have to control how much input we're getting from the different uh, sources. And then we added uh, a controllable load that we could impress on the system in order to draw down any excess energy that might be coming from the wind system on a very high speed instantaneous basis. And that load is uh, just heating up water. It's an electrical element or a, a series of electrical elements that can be fired in rapid succession in order to heat up water. And that water goes into our cooling loop or our heat recovery loop. It keeps our plant warm. And then uh, if we have a heat recovery system set up for the community, then that heat can also be shared with community buildings like um, water plants and city offices and those sorts of things. But that, that secondary load controller was a key component, again, relying on fast electronics, uh, fast switching, and good communication in order to make the system work and remain stable. Now there is um, you know, the ability to put in energy storage, which is probably the next stage and even better than a secondary load controller because the secondary load controller made heat, which is useful, but you couldn't put energy away and then use it again later. Uh, so this, the ability to use energy storage and recover the energy at a later date, you know, minutes or hours later, uh, really is a game changer for being able to integrate renewables uh, in an economical manner on these small grids. Yeah, and actually that was my next question was looking at some of the new technology that's being developed both uh, you know, by the government or by private uh, entities and out of the some of the funding from the recent federal infrastructure bills. Is there anything on the horizon, any technology you're watching that excites you that might work well for AVEC in these rural communities? There are a tremendous amount of our opportunities coming out um, with the uh, federal infrastructure program and uh, it's, it's almost mind-boggling trying to wade through all of the uh, funding opportunities that are being announced. But the um, technologies that are out there with wind and solar and energy storage are really the, the three main components that are uh, providing the best opportunity for reducing diesel burn. That said, there's not a solution out there uh, without very long-term storage. There's not a solution out there that's going to displace diesel generation in rural communities anytime soon. There still needs to always be uh, a base generation mode that uh, creates the grid in, in all types of weather. Um, the, the diesel generator runs all through the winter when there's no solar power and it runs, you know, whenever the wind's not blowing. We can install wind and solar and energy storage and displace, you know, maybe more than 50% of the diesel fuel in a community, but without multi-day 
storage, there's no way to guarantee that you're always going to have power unless you have a, a diesel generator to back up the system. Yeah, and that seems to be a crucial point, especially in a state like Alaska, where the winters are long, dark, and cold. And so you want to have that power available for folks to uh, not only provide, you know, essential services, but just uh, the light to do our daily activities to. So I think that seems like something that really goes into the thought process when you're looking at these new technologies. Yeah, and the whole the whole system has to be in place and, and ready to meet peak load at a moment's notice. Even if you are relying heavily on on wind, you know we've had occasions where we've got four wind turbines that are running and they're at maximum output because it's a very windy day. But if the wind picks up just a little bit more, then they shut down rather than going into overspeed. You know they have their own threshold as as to what they can run on. So you can go from full capacity wind down to zero in the matter of seconds and if you don't have a diesel that's already online to pick up that load um, the lights are going to go out so for most of our communities there's always a diesel running in the background that one project that i mentioned uh, in shungnak with solar battery is sized large enough with a large enough inverter and large enough battery to actually go diesels off Um, and that's that's similar to what we're trying to install in St. Mary's, we'll, we'll have enough energy storage and enough DC to AC capacity in the inverter in order to recover quickly uh, if the 900 kW turbine drops offline and then give us time to start a diesel and put that back online to prevent any sort of outage. Yeah, that's all really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you're describing this because I think it's important for folks to know that there's a lot that goes on behind that switch. Uh, a lot of complicated calculations and a lot of coordination that the electric utilities are doing as they provide power every day to you know so it's easy for us on the consumer side just to flip that switch and not really have to worry about it so bill there's there's a lot of uh, electrification happening across the country you know things that have often run on maybe fossil fuels are becoming electrified are you seeing that out in the communities that that you serve for avec is there a lot of electrification of of, act, of activities that used to be fossil fuel based taking place out there? Not yet. Um, I think it's probably coming and it, it, it you know, it's, it's going to be, the pressure is going to be there depending on you know, just how expensive gasoline and fuel oil become over time. Um, you know, AVEC for many years waged a campaign against electric hot water heaters, you know, convincing people as as water and sewer was moved out into rural communities, people are installing facilities to make hot water. And, uh, you know, an electric hot water heater might make sense in, in a big city, uh, but out in rural Alaska where you're actually burning diesel fuel in order to make electricity, to send the electricity to the home for them to use that electricity to heat water where they could have just used diesel fuel boiler or uh, stove of some type to heat that water directly, that's probably more efficient. And um, that may now be changing with the uh, improvements in heat pump technology. So a heat pump is, um, they have air-to-air and air-to-water heat pumps that can um, efficiently convert electricity and the the warmth in the ambient air into uh, a heating system. And those efficiencies have gotten to the point where 
it might start to make sense for people to do home heating with a heat pump in, in some rural communities. And that creates a challenge for AVAC or any small rural grid because, you know, those types of additional loads will have to be compensated for by increasing distribution sizes and transformer sizes and generator sizes and ultimately fuel tank sizes uh, in order to store enough fuel for those things. So I think there is, uh, you know, some lean towards what they call beneficial electrification. Um, I don't see or anticipate seeing a whole lot of electric vehicles in rural Alaska, at least on these smaller grids that we serve. They make uh, a lot of sense if the electricity is coming from hydropower, maybe not so much. Again, it's that same equation where we're, we're burning diesel fuel in order to make electricity, and the electricity would then be used for, for transportation. Uh, it might be more efficient just to use that uh, carbon-intensive fuel to, to make transportation happen directly. Um, you know, it really depends on where your power is coming from. If we get to a point where we have substantial renewable energy on our grids and uh, maybe there's sur surplus renewable energy, then other beneficial electrification items could be installed. And one of those is, is similar to that secondary load controller where I was, I was talking about earlier. We do have uh, some facilities that have wind to heat. So if we do have excess wind power, there would be a, an electric boiler in a building that is separately dispatched to turn on if we have excess wind power and you know providing heat um, at that time is when there's there's no other use for it on the grid. It sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff coming in the future, but a lot to think about too. Um, let's switch gears real quick with the the few minutes we have left. I want to talk real fast about the power cost equalization program which could probably have a podcast of its own. But uh, the PCE program, as it's known, of course, is designed to equalize the cost of power in rural Alaska with that on uh, the average of Fairbanks, Anchorage, and Juneau. For a utility like AVEC, and especially the communities it serves, PCE is extremely important. Can you just talk a little bit about PCE and its importance to the communities that you serve? Yeah, Mike. Um, the... Uh I guess going back to the origination of, of the power cost equalization program, it really was something um, done out of fairness by the Alaska legislature after the state had spent hundreds of millions of dollars on hydro projects and uh, transmission lines for the rail belt and um, you know tax subsidies for cooking lit gas development and, and production, that all of those benefits go to, you know, communities that are either on the rail belt or in southeast and there was no uh, equal benefit that could be provided in one large project to communities that are off the road system in rural Alaska. So in its wisdom, the legislature put aside an endowment fund uh, and, and made some a few tranches of, of deposits to that endowment fund in order to help buy down the cost of, of energy in rural communities. And that fund is somewhat self-sustaining. It's invested, and I think they use 5% of the proceeds on an annual basis to pay for the power cost equalization fund. And I think that works out to be 
30 to 40 million dollars a year that goes out to rural communities across Alaska, not just to AVAC, but across Alaska to help pay for residential uh, electricity and community building facility electricity. It does not pay for any commercial facilities. It does not pay for any state or federally run facilities, anything like that. Um, so it is a it is a great advantage for uh, homeowners that um, instead of having to pay 50, 60, 70 cents kilowatt hour, that the, the extreme cost of, of power in rural Alaska is bought down up to a cap. Uh, it was just raised last year from 500 kilowatt hours a month to 750 kilowatt hours a month for residential consumer. Um, and anything below that 750 kilowatt hour cap, the PCE program will buy down the difference or 95% of the difference between what it costs in that community for residential power and what it would, the average cost would be, as you said, in uh, Anchorage, Juneau, and Fairbanks. So it is a, it is a boon for, for homeowners, but it doesn't do much for the commercial development of um, you know, bringing down the cost of commercial development or commercial services uh, in the community. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating program, and I know for Alaska Power Association, it's it's a perennial um, item of ours in our state policy positions to maintain that program as our members in rural Alaska continue doing what AVEX been doing, which is innovating with all the things you've been talking about to um, hopefully bring down the cost of power in the future or stabilize the cost of power. So that's uh, one thing I wanted to make sure we got out there was the importance of the PCE program. Well, Bill, it's, it's been real great talking to you. Um, anything that you want to mention at the tail end here that's that you're excited about with AVAC here in the near future in the minute we got left? Well, no, I think you touched on a, on, on a lot of those things. Um, the electric utility in general is going through transformation based on new technologies that are available. And, and you know, it affects everything, not just on the technical side, but also, you know, simple things like rate structures. How do we actually charge for electricity as opposed to uh, where everything used to be kilowatt hour sales? Now maybe we need to almost have a, a larger membership because as more and more people try to generate their own power, there won't be as much kilowatt hour sales, but we still have to maintain all the facilities and distribution and generation to keep the system running at all times uh, on the occasion that Folks are going to rely on the grid again for power. So, as we as we migrate towards you know probably more and more cell generation, we're going to have to look at what our rates look like in the future uh, to stay in operation. Always a lot to think yeah, about, and always that's, always a lot going on. Another podcast altogether, Mike. Sorry. That probably is absolutely. Well, Bill, thanks a lot for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. We've been talking to Bill Stam, the president and CEO of Alaska Village Electric Cooperative. This was the Alaska Powerline Podcast. I'm Michael Ravito, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, everyone.